0: All right, let's turn in our Bibles back to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And most of you know that our salvation is composed of uh, three facets. First of all, salvation has to do with justification. And that means that we are declared right with God uh, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We put our faith and trust in Him. We are forgiven of our sins, and we have the uh, hope of heaven one day as he promises us the gift of eternal life. Then we have the aspect of sanctification, and this is how our life begins to grow and develop into that righteousness that God has given us in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We begin to understand more and more of his word, what his moral will is for us, and through his Holy Spirit we have the power to start uh, becoming Christ-like in our behavior, in our actions. And the last aspect of our salvation is glorification. That's uh, the end of the road. That's when we do get to glory, to heaven, uh, when we pass from this life to the next, or the Lord Jesus comes back, and we will be fully redeemed, we'll receive that glorious body that is similar to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll be completely Uh, free of sin and perfected in him. As we come to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're arriving at some teaching in that area of sanctification. And as we read earlier in verse 3, that this is the will of God, your sanctification. He wants you to be growing up in the Lord Jesus Christ to that righteousness that Jesus has. And the Apostle Paul has commended this church in a number of ways for its work of faith, its labor of love, and patience of hope. He has praised them uh, for their exemplary endeavors in evangelism and their faithfulness to the Lord in trial and temptation. But there was the need for more growth, as there always is, especially in these young converts in the city of Thessalonica. And Paul mentioned in chapter 3 his desire to see them uh, and uh, perfect what was lacking in their faith. He wants them to increase in love so that Christ may establish them holy and blameless at his return. And in chapter 4, Paul begins to deal with some issues where the believers need to be perfected in holiness. And a life that pleases God is a sanctified life. It's not enough just to claim justification uh, from your sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. From that point forward, the Lord wants you to grow. He wants you to be separate from sin and walk in a way that pleases God and not ourselves. And this is the thrust of these first 12 verses that we read this morning. We please God by obeying his will For our sanctification. And here it involves three specific areas. First of all, we please God by walking in purity, then by walking in charity, and then by walking in integrity. And may the Lord Jesus help us to be pleasing to God in these areas as we cover them this morning. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we are thankful that your word explains to us Uh, what your will is for us. And Lord, we pray that as we uh, learn more and more of what your word teaches us, help us, Lord, not to reject it or despise it, but Lord, help us to seek your help, your aid of obeying it. And we just pray, Lord, you'll speak to our hearts and bless us as we look to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul begins with a general principle in the first two verses this morning as to how you ought to walk and to please God. So the first thing we're going to do is look at those two verses and see the purpose of a believer's life is to please God. And he gives the directive of this in verse 1, beginning with the words, finally, then, brethren... And when Paul says finally, he doesn't mean that uh, the epistle is about to end. He's marking a place from uh, the previous teaching to something that he's going to address about other issues. And again, he calls the believers there, brethren. That means brothers and sisters. We've learned that, that that's an affectionate uh, term used for family members, reminding us that we are in the family of God. And it also kind of takes the edge off of what he is about to say here uh, in the next few verses. Now, what Paul has to say is um, an urging and an exhortation toward these people. Uh, This is not as forceful as a command, but it's more authoritative than just a request. The verb to urge there means to ask or to give a friendly request, but then he adds to it this idea of exhortation, and that gives more force to it, more authority to it. This is an apostolic plea to the people that he's uh, directing it to, and it's expressed in the Lord Jesus, and of course that enhances the authority of what he has to say. So what does the Apostle Paul urge them to do? Well he says you should abound more and more and that speaks of growth. He wants them to grow. Uh, this means that the Christian life of pleasing God is something that never becomes stagnant. It's always moving forward. You never reach a place or a plateau in your life as a believer where you really can be completely satisfied in the way you're living. Uh, If perfection in Christ is the goal for believers, can it really ever be fully attained in this life? I think not. There's always room for us to abound, uh, to grow, to attain a greater level of sanctification, and this is what God wants for us. Now, this abounding has to do with what they have already received the lord uh, Paul says that you should abound more and more just as you have received from us. and of course, we know they have received uh, instruction, they have received the gospel message. they received everything involved in that message, which is not just your initial salvation but uh, further teaching on what that means, what the will of God encompasses. And so he's teaching them doctrine, uh, ethics, uh, practical teaching, morality, all of this is involved in our walk with God. And it shows us how we walk in a way that pleases the Lord. That, of course, begins with your initial acceptance of him as your Savior, but it never stops there. There's always much to learn and obey in a life that pleases the Lord. Paul uh, mentions here how you ought to walk and to please God. He uses that terminology of walking uh, to express one's behavior, one's way of living. Uh, As you walk through life, Uh, uh, you do the things that are required of you, you bring that over to your spiritual life, it's talking about walking with God, your behavior, the way that you live, which is not going to be different than before you got saved. Before you got saved, you walked in your own way, whether you realize that or not. Once you are saved, you begin to walk in God's ways, as he instructs us in his word. And this is something that you note there in that verse that we ought to do, that we need to do. It's not really something you have a choice about as a believer. If you're really saved, you should have the desire within you to please God, and he's implanted that in you. You have a hungering and a thirsting after righteousness now that you did not have before. So the Lord expects you to conduct yourself in a way that pleases him, Not yourself, not society, not Satan, but God. So how then do we know uh, the way to please God? Well, if you look here at verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. We learn about God, we learn how to serve him, how to live for him through his word. The word commandments there suggests that or indicates that this particular word means instruction. So this would include all the scripture, both the Old and New Testaments, that teaches us not only gospel truth, how to come to know Christ, but how to live for him and please God. Now, as we've learned The Apostle Paul and his team wasn't able to stay at this church for a long uh, period of time, and even when you include Timothy's return there and his teaching, we're not sure how long that was, but probably not more than uh, a couple months again, uh, they're establishing the truth and faith in these people, but they're still immature, they're still young, they're still babes in Christ, and there's much Uh, to do as far as their understanding and obedience to God's word. And we grow in grace today and faith and sanctification by reading God's word, by hearing it, and by studying it. And the key, though, is not just hearing the word, it's receiving it with a view of obeying it. So back up in uh, verse 1, he says, You received this. They gave it to them through the Lord Jesus Christ, and they took it in. They received it. They believed, and then they began to follow the instructions that go along with that belief. (coughs) Excuse me. And they're growing in grace. As Paul instructs them, Timothy's instructed them, and then future people who go back there and help them. And then they've developed their own uh, structure in the church where they have leaders who will teach them the word of God. So the sanctified life that pleases God is revealed in his word, and it's got to be continually received by his people to do them any good. Now, the apostle deals with three ways that we're to walk with God and please him in this passage. Of course, this is just one small passage of the whole word of God, but it covers some important areas. So we're going to look at those this morning. First of all, we please God by walking in purity. And this is kind of the bulk of what he has to say here in verses 3 through 8. And first of all, note in verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So it's God's will for you to be saved and to please him with your life. It's God's will for you uh, to do what he wants and what he says is right and holy and good. And really, this is written over all the pages of Scripture. It conveys to us the high standard of morality and ethics that God wants men to live by. And he wants us to be different than the world in which we live, and the lost people who live in that decadent world system. We stand out like a sore thumb, not the same as the world that we live in. And this is what sanctification is all about. Now, that word comes from a word that means to cut or divide, and thus it means to separate. And when we're talking about this spiritual life, it means that when we get saved, we are separated from a sinful lifestyle unto God who is holy. And God says, be ye holy for I am holy. So it's the idea of, of living the way God wants us to, separating from what we once were to what God wants us to be. And this is really what God Uh, or Paul meant when he wrote in the first chapter about the Thessalonian church, how you turn from God, uh, from idols to serve the living and true God. So that's their sanctification. That's their separation from what they once were. Now, one area of sanctification that he deals with here is something we have to deal with sooner or later in our lives, every single one of us. And that involves sexual immorality. Now we've got some young people here who are probably not at a stage where they understand this yet. So this is something that we teach as uh, from God's word in the church. It should be taught in the home as well. And we've got some folks that are growing up older and they're coming to the time where uh, they're going to be taking an interest in somebody and the opposite sex which there are only two of <clears throat> and uh, they need to be aware of what God says about these things because the devil can bring about temptations, the world of course is not going to agree what we have to say, and we've got to be very careful. So uh, in what ways then do we please God? Well It says here, we please God by abstaining from sexual immorality in this verse. Now, remember that the world of that day was just as immoral as it is today. Things don't really change. Even the false gods of the uh, pagans that uh, worship back in that day, the gods were immoral. The polytheism of that day was... was, uh, Uh, corrupted by the evil thinking of of men because they're the ones who created it in the first place. One uh, commentator wrote the new morality is only the old morality catching up to modern times. Things don't really change that much over time in this area and sexual immorality in that day was just as rampant as it is in our day. So Paul You know, why is he writing this to the church? Well, they're coming out of that kind of a a society that views this as something that's normal, that's fine, and uh, uh, the the view is very low when you compare it to what God says. And uh, some people may have been having temptations in that area or had not fully come out, uh, or he's just kind of writing to them, forewarning them, that purity is God's will, and they need to obey that. Now, the word that's used here is the word uh, porneo, from which we derive pornography today. You're aware of that. It's a general term, and it covers uh, sin in this whole area. Sex before marriage, or within marriage with someone other than your spouse, homosexuality, Pornography, all these kind of things, and we don't, folks, we don't just sin with our body, we can sin with our mind. So we have to take this to heart because it can affect really all of us, even in a married situation. So we've got to understand God says purity is something that pleases Him, and uh, we know that God. Uh, says that outside of that one man, one woman relationship brought together in the marriage bond, anything outside of that is wrong, and sometimes even within it can be wrong as well. The union of two people in this way is only sanctioned and only blessed by God in a marriage relationship. Now, he goes on to explain this a little bit more. So, Uh, not only do we please God by abstaining from immorality, he goes on to say in verse 4, we please God by controlling ourselves in sanctification and honor. Verse 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Now, there's a little controversy over what that word vessel means, But uh, most conservative commentators and scholars uh, believe this refers to your body, and it's used that way in some other passages. And although the term to possess uh, usually means to acquire, in the context here, it seems best to interpret this in the sense of possessing yourself or controlling yourself, the idea of temperance in this particular area. You're separating from sin and honoring and sanctifying your own body by abstaining from this kind of activity outside of marriage. Now, folks, the sexual drive was created by God, so in itself, it is not sinful. Uh, God intended it to be fulfilled between the husband and wife for the purpose of propagating the race, and also for their intimate pleasure. But it is a powerful desire that can become highly tempting if we do not seek the Lord's help in maintaining temperance and self-control until we come together with the partner God has chosen for us. And that's why it's important to have some standards of conduct in a dating or engagement relationship. So be thinking about that as well. We're not going to go into that area right now. Now, conversely, as the apostle goes on here in verse 5, this attitude and this uh, regard for yourself is totally different than what you find out there in the world. He says, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles or unbelievers who don't know God. So there again is a distinction. You've got people who know God and what he expects of him and what pleases him, and then you've got the rest of the world who does not yet know God and what pleases them, and we see this uh, all over the place in the world today. So we are not um, to allow our sensitivities to devolve into lustful passion like people who do not know God, and we, like I said, there's examples of this everywhere in our society. We're driven by this. It is our God, and young people today are not expected to abstain, but to experiment, and the ideology is uh, 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 you can't stop them, so just warn them to be careful but that's not the will of God, not for his people. The will of God is for his people to be pure, to please him, and, not, uh, and to trust him to help them to be obedient. Now, one other thing in verse um, 6, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. So the third thought along these lines is we please God by not taking advantage of others in this area. Now this probably pertains a little more to the men than the women. And sometimes a young man could take advantage of a young lady who admires him or has a crush on him or who may be dating him and a young Christian man should be a leader in maintaining a pure relationship, but there still can be that strong temptation. And often a young man, especially one who doesn't know God, uh, has one thing in mind, and they're good at coaxing others to do their will. And this should never be the case with a Christian young man. And so we have to take measures to be careful in what a relationship is going to be with someone of the opposite sex. And young ladies, too, need to protect their chastity, not fall into wrongful advances, or be guilty of inappropriate flirtations. So we dress the way we ought to dress. We cover our bodies, and today, uh, young ladies don't cover up the way they ought to, and uh, they don't realize that that is not helping the guys with their thought processes and the temptations that can come to them. So both parties need to be careful that they are not uh, taking advantage and thus defrauding somebody. Now what does that mean? Well, this Word means to cross a boundary or go beyond what is right. And it can allude to arousing desires in someone that would be sinful if those desires were to be fulfilled. And then again, you have to remember, this control is in your mind as well as your body. You control your thought processes. We also should think about this in the sense of our future marriage partner would not a lack of abstinence be a sin against a future bride to be and her husband or a husband to his bride? How would uh, uh, would they feel if they knew their prospective mate had not kept themselves pure in this area? That could cause a lot of problems as well. So it's very clear what God's will is regarding sexual immorality, and we must endeavor to obey it. And now God, uh, Paul gives some reasons why we ought to do that. So let's think about those in uh, verse six, the second part of verse six, and we need to obey God about this area of purity. First of all, <clears throat> the Lord says, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. So the apostle has done some teaching on this. He's forewarned them about this. He's told them about uh, the immorality that's out there in the world and is condoned by the world is not for us. We have to change. We have to be following God. And they forewarned them and testified about these things. And if they obey He's telling them, the Lord is the avenger. God is a just judge who appropriately punishes those who persist in sins of this nature. And I can think of one scriptural example. You go back to King David. King David loved the Lord, but King David fell to a temptation in this area. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then he conspired against her husband to make sure he died in battle to cover up his sin. And a child came from this uh, relationship, and that child grew ill and eventually died. God did not allow them to have the joy that uh, came from that illicit relationship. He didn't allow them to escape pain, and shame, and from that point forward, God said that David would have issues and problems in his family because of what he had done. So you don't escape the consequences of failure in this area. Then the Lord says in verse 7 that uh, uh, this type of sin goes against our calling. He says, for God did not call us unto uncleanness, but in holiness. He didn't call us to keep on sinning in this way but to change and to become holy. He doesn't want us to leave an unclean, immoral, impure lifestyle. He's called us to the exact opposite which is our holiness, becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ and he gives us the ability to do that through the power of his Holy Spirit and we've got to trust him to help us. And finally, Uh, it becomes a step uh, more serious in verse 8 when he says, therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man. In other words, you're not rejecting me as a man who's conveying this to you. There's a much higher power that you need to uh, be thinking about. You reject God. You despise God. You despise his ways. You are viewing as what he tells you as null and void when it comes to you. And you're, again, putting yourself in that place where God becomes an avenger. And he also mentions here, who's given us his Holy Spirit. So you're despising the Lord, you're despising his spirit when you fail to obey what he has to say here. And you have to realize the spirit of God is in you. So are you going to make him sin? One commentator wrote, this sin is understood in its true light only when it is seen as a preference for impurity rather than the spirit who is holy. Now Paul doesn't just talk about this in this book. There are others as well, but I want you uh, to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 because the the, uh, the Holy Spirit enters the picture and I want to see uh, you to see how serious this is. So if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm going to read the last three verses, verses 18 through 20. <clears throat> Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And he goes on to say, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you're not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And that's very powerful. We're to glorify God in our body, and uh, when we fail in this area, we're not doing that. So it's a most serious situation in which God's will must be obeyed if you're going to live a life that pleases him. Now, let's move on here quickly to the last two things. and verses 9 and 10, it comes back to the issue of love again. So we please God by walking in purity and also walking in charity. And if you're not walking in purity, you're not walking in charity. You're not loving your brother as you love yourself. You're not obeying God in the area of love either. You're loving yourself more than you love uh, God. But Paul has already commended this church for their labor of love back in chapter 1, verse 3. And now he, knew, he uses another term. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So, this is a little bit different term. This is a, that affectionate term that's a family term that, uh, uh, you understand when you're raised in a family that, uh, that kind of love is there. And this really came, came into scriptural use because of the family relationship that Christians have with each other that can even be deeper than human family relationships. <clears throat> uh, God's our Father. We're his children. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. So the family relationship is evident. It was evident in this church. He says, I don't really need to write to you and explain this more. It's something that you're taught uh, by God, and they had been obeying. Uh, He doesn't need to instruct them in what that is anymore. And it's something that almost comes natural to us once we get saved. But he does go on and uh, say, although they are manifesting this kind of love, there's always room for growth. Back in chapter 3, remember that Paul prayed God would make them increase and abound in love. And here, even though, verse 10, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, even though they're showing that kind of love, and uh, we're not exactly sure how that was done, But other churches were aware of this. He says, we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So you're already doing it. That's good. That's right. But there's always room to increase and grow. And uh, can we ever have too much love for other people? The problem usually is we have too much love for ourselves and not enough for other people. So I think all of us understand that we can always grow in our love toward other believers that are out there in the world. So I don't really need to digress on that much more. Then we come down to verses 11 and 12, and we see that not only do we please God in purity and in charity, we also please God by walking in integrity. Okay, So integrity is your living up to a standard, a high standard. There's no higher standard than God's standard. David spoke many times about his own walking in integrity. And so he was obeying God's standard for life. And of course, he failed, as we often do. But when we walk in integrity, we do this through God's word and God's spirit. And this applies now in our relationship to other people in the church And also our relationship to people outside of the church, and Paul is dealing with that here. (coughs) Excuse me. First of all, we walk in integrity before those who are in the church. Verse eleven. This is something that he uh, else that he urges them to increase more and more in. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands. Okay, so this is in a church-type atmosphere. By leading a quiet life, there's so much in the world that can disturb our peace, isn't there? There's just no quietness out there in the world. Every time you turn the news on, you read the newspaper, uh, that just comes out on every page. The world is not a quiet place. Our ambition ought to be to have as peaceful and tranquil a life as we possibly can. Our focus should not be as much on the material side and, you know, the political side and uh, all the stuff that's going on out there in the world. Uh, It needs to be based on our relationship to the Lord. That's what gives us peace, even as we go out there in the world and we do our work. And this may have been tied in to the church's anticipation for the Lord's coming, <clears throat> excuse me, which Paul's going to deal with in the rest of chapter four and some of chapter five. They're thinking the Lord's going to come back right away, and they're wondering what happened to everybody who died already, and who's going to miss that. And they're full of anticipation for the Lord to come, and uh, they may have just developed a kind of a restlessness about this and waiting for the Lord and begun to think so much about that that they're shirking some of their uh, uh, responsibilities. And this probably connects to some other of the admonitions that he gives here about uh, living peacefully, living a quiet life, and minding your own business and working with your own hands. So uh, we know what it means, I, I hope to mind your own business and uh, work to take care of yourself and your family. The more diligent you are in doing the things that you ought to do leaves little time to meddle in everybody else's business. And this too could have been associated with um, their anticipation about the Lord's return. Um, They might have, you know, stopped their jobs. Uh, historically this has happened to some groups of christians oh uh, we're predicting the lord's going to come back at this day so they quit their jobs they go up on the roof they wait for the lord to come and the lord doesn't come so it could have been the same mindset back then and so if you don't have a job and you don't work especially in those days in that society where you almost sometimes need to work every day to get your food and stuff like that what happens after three or four days you don't have any food so what do you do Well, you know what? I think I'll go over to Joe's house at at, uh, supper time and maybe get an invite. You're shirking your responsibility and you're putting it on somebody else to take care of you because you're making some kind of a silly decision and uh, uh, you you don't have time to, to work now. And instead of working, you go to his house and you start talking about the Lord's return to somebody else's house. And, and that's what you're all about. And so you're really kind of shirking your responsibility. So he's reminding them, look, you need to work. You need to mind your own business. And you need to, to trust God to, to meet your needs. But you don't quit working because you think the Lord's coming back. So it's, it's kind of that mindset. And, of course, the Lord wants us to work, to be industrious, to meet our needs, trusting him, and not be a burden to others. And not doing that does not really please God. So these have, you know, obvious modern day uh, time uh, applications. Um, We don't need to get involved in everybody else's business because we've got enough business of our own. So we don't become a busybody. We don't need to know everything about everybody and what they're doing and what's going on in their life. We don't need to spread that around. What good does that really do to us or anybody else? And being a know-it-all is really not all that attractive. As a matter of fact, it's a manifestation of pride. So we need to be careful about how far we go in that kind of a thing. And uh, he goes on to mention here that this has an effect on people outside as well, that you may walk properly toward those who are uh, without, who are outside, that you may lack nothing. Okay, so you don't want to lack anything by not working and by being a busybody and things of that nature and not worrying about just having a a peaceful, tranquil home. Uh, And this is going to bear testimony on other people who are outside of the church group. And we're either going to bear a good testimony or we're going to bear a bad one. We're either going to show we're trying to please God or not. And if we're immoral, if we lack love towards others, if we're a busybody, if we're lazy, we portray a poor example to those who are outside and uh, need to be saved. People who know you're a Christian are going to be quick to point the finger at what they perceive to be hypocrisy, and it will give them much joy to compare themselves to you and uh, think that you're really not that different from them, so why should they even consider what you believe? So these are some areas of Christian conduct that Paul needed to address, and they are just as pertinent in our day as they were back in Paul's day. So if you want to be a Christian who pleases God, here's three areas that are very clear from the word of God. If you don't have that desire, um, something isn't right. A Christian should have a desire to please God, and God expects us to do that, and he enables us to do that as well. And if we are willing, then we're pleasing God. As I've mentioned, as you know, our society is immersed in all kinds of sexual immorality. We're bombarded with it every day. News media, advertising, TV, movies, education, business, it's all out there. Yet God expects us as His people to be pure and moral and upright in this area. So, is it your desire as a young person growing up, as a person's already married, uh, to keep your mind pure, to keep your body pure, to abstain from immorality of all kinds. This is God's will. So determine now to be pure in body and mind as you're growing up. Love also is something lacking in our society, The self-sacrificing love the Bible talks about, brotherly love, family love. This should characterize a believer in such a way that it surprises our wicked world. And then, of course, we please God by living a quiet, tranquil life, unhindered by worldly influences. We mind our own business rather than everybody else's. We work hard to support our families, to give to the Lord's work, to help other people who are in need. And in these ways, we live a life that pleases God and is a testimony to a lost world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again are thankful for the clear teaching of your word. We're thankful, Lord, that through salvation and through the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of your word, we can please you now in life. Help us, Lord, to obey the many instructions in your word about our morality. Help our young people as they grow up and uh, become interested in a life partner that they will uh, conduct themselves in a way that is pleasing to you. Help us, Lord, as adults to submit to this as well because uh, we can sin in our thoughts Uh, Help us to be faithful to one another and uh, to our spouses. And Lord, we pray that you'll help us as we uh, have children and grandchildren in our own families to instruct them in the ways of righteousness. Help us, Lord, also to conduct ourselves in a loving manner toward each other, toward those who are without. Of course, Lord, to uh, mind our business, to continue to work and provide for ourselves, knowing that you bless us in these ways as well so lord help us today to uh, make any decisions that are necessary to be pleasing to your will we ask in jesus name and for his sake amen